This series is titled Advancing Accurate Representation in Research, and it is critically important in the quest to advance health equity. Why? Advancing accurate representation in research is very important for health equity because there can be no effective cures or treatments, accurate public health data, sustainable health behavior interventions, or fit-for-purpose medical devices without diverse people testing them out and providing feedback to scientists about what works and doesn't work for them. The data that comes from representative studies also goes a long way to bolster patient advocacy, which not only shapes healthcare transformation, but also health and social policy. If people from different backgrounds and communities are not included in research, then the results or findings will only apply to those most similar to those who were involved. How long have we known that this was a barrier to advancing health equity? According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the National Health Interview Survey of the National Center for Health Statistics did not explicitly ask the race of its survey respondents between its inception in 1957 through 1975. Since then, the U.S. federal government has beefed up its efforts to better collect this data, but is still a challenge to this day. So why is it hard to accurately represent the population in research? There is a vast amount of research dedicated to resolving this issue and some challenges, including things like non-English speaking people being concerned about language barriers that prevent them from learning about research opportunities. Competing demands like time and financial constraints make it difficult for some people to fully participate in research. Numerous people have had negative interactions with their healthcare system and do not want to participate in research. And there are more barriers to accurate representation in research. So if there's a lot of data describing the problem, then why are we still pushing to advance accurate representation in research? In many ways, we are data rich and resource poor in this effort to close racial ethnic differences in health status, outcomes, and access to high quality comprehensive health care. We have to commit to making the evidence we have gathered actionable, a long-term commitment to systems change, increasing resources to reproduce successful models, and continuously innovating new strategies to meet the needs of various communities. This will require us to continue to ask questions of stakeholders in the healthcare ecosystem. That includes healthcare providers, biomedical industry, clinical research organizations, health insurance providers, government agencies, and not to mention us, the people. We need to think about the questions we have not yet asked and consider why people don't answer certain questions when we ask them. For this reason, Questions You Didn't Ask has partnered with the Reagan Udall Foundation for the FDA to help us examine this important topic. I would like to introduce you to the series co-host, Dr. Carla Rodriguez Watson. Dr. Carla Rodriguez Watson is the Director of Research for the Reagan Udall Foundation for the FDA. Carla is focused on continuously developing and enhancing a portfolio of work that leverages real-world data and experiences to inform and conduct clinical and post-market drug safety and effectiveness studies. 
Projects include those focused on developing and advancing frameworks and tools to systematically describe data sources and methods for use in real-world data studies, as well as the Innovation and Medical Evidence Development and Surveillance Program, also known as IMEDS, where such tools can be leveraged and tested. IMEDS leverages a distributed network and tools developed by the FDA's Sentinel Initiative to design and execute post-market drug safety studies and a network of nine healthcare systems representing over 90 million covered lives. She is also the principal investigator of the RAISE program, which stands for Real World Accelerator to Improve the Standard of Collection and Curation of Race and Ethnicity in Healthcare. Carla brings her extensive experience in the triumphs and pitfalls of pharmacoepidemiology, public health surveillance, and health outcomes research to this work. She earned her PhD in epidemiology from the University of Washington School of Public Health, her MPH from Columbia University Mailman School of Public Health, and her BA from Rutgers University. Thank you, Dr. Carla Rodriguez-Watson. It is a pleasure and an honor to have you join me as a special co-host of Questions You Didn't Ask. Welcome. Thank you, Naisha. I'm pleased to be here, and you can just call me Carla. Uh, <laughs> we, we, as you noted, you know, we started RAISE because we were concerned about kind of the lack of information about race and ethnicity in real-world data sets that we derive from clinical care. As you mentioned, you know, without diversity in research, we can't get to these really important outcomes that are accessible for, for all of our populations. But it also works the flip side. A lot of research is now driven by information that's collected in the real world. Information like race and ethnicity that, again, get collected along an entire continuum in the healthcare ecosystem. And if we can't manage to capture and curate that information all along the way and make sure that it's accurate and complete, then we have less information to inform clinical trial designs, recruitment to ensure that those populations are diverse and can eventually access those treatments. So I'm really pleased to be here and, and talk to our guests. Okay, well, that's wonderful. So now it's time for me to queue up our talented guest today. I am so pleased to introduce Dr. Nadine Barrett. She is an associate professor in the Department of Family Medicine and Community Health at Duke University. She is a medical sociologist and serves as the Duke Clinical and Translational Science Institute, co-director for equity and stakeholder strategy, the founding director of the Duke Center for Equity and Research, and associate director of equity and community and stakeholder strategy for the Duke Cancer Institute. Dr. Barrett is a health disparities researcher, expert equity strategist, and a nationally recognized leader in facilitating community and academic partnerships to advance health equity and developing multi-level interventions to address structural and systemic racism and implicit bias that limits access to quality healthcare and life-saving or enhancing research. She is the inventor of Just Ask, a nationally recognized education and training program designed to address lack of diverse and broad representation, participation, and clinical research and trials across the translational spectrum. 
She facilitates authentic community and academic partnerships to develop and drive research priorities and advance equity in healthcare delivery. To this end, she engages community colleagues as co-investigators, advisors, experts, and participants in clinical and translational research. Her leadership includes government appointments, serving on local and national boards and committees, including as president-elect of the National Association of Community Cancer Centers. Dr. Barrett is a highly engaging, sought-after speaker, and her work in nonprofit and academic leadership spans local, national, and international partnerships to better serve and engage historically and currently marginalized and underserved populations. Our second guest, Dr. Alicia Clary, is the founder and CEO of Evidence to Practice, a consulting and advisory services firm that provides clients, expert research, policy, and operations support to accelerate the adoption of healthcare innovations. She also serves as a co-investigator on the RAISE project and leading the development of the RAISE roadmap and the RAISE program evaluation. She is a health services researcher and implementation scientist by trade. Prior to founding Evidence to Practice, Dr. Clary served as the Associate Director of Research for the Reagan Udall Foundation for the FDA. She held previous roles as a research scientist at Avalier Health, where she designed and conducted studies focused on using real-world evidence to evaluate and improve healthcare quality. And as both a research analyst and health science specialist at the Durham VA, Dr. Cleary earned a doctoral degree from the Gilling School of Global Public Health at UNC Chapel Hill, a master's degree from the UNC School of Social Work, and a bachelor's degree in sociology from UNC Chapel Hill. Welcome. Thank you both for being here. Thank everyone for being here. So now we're going to jump right into the conversation. This is a very important conversation that, you know, happens quite a bit and one of the things that we really want to drill down on is the fact that when we talk about research, we often are challenged with, and questions, right? Are challenged with like, why are you asking me this question? And what are you gonna do with this information once I share it? We're in an information age where people are sharing information all the time. And so questions around ethics commonly come up when we are in this space of wanting to advance accurate representation, bringing more people into research. So I'm gonna direct this first question to Nadine. What are some key challenges that researchers and healthcare innovators have when building community awareness and trust? Wow, thank you, Naisha. And that's a really big question and without question an important one as well. So thank you for asking the question. You know, it's, it's interesting when we think about what this really looks like. And I think with us and the colleagues that you brought together here, we can certainly highlight a number of challenges that we can see in this space. Um, most certainly when we think about engaging our communities and building trust and what that looks like, I, I think it's important for us to kind of think about the terms that many of us have been using now. Instead of talking about trust, we're really talking about what is trustworthiness and how do we as institutions, organizations, pharma, et cetera, become more trustworthy to populations that historically and currently for that matter have not really experienced trustworthy environments around research and even access to care. 
So I think first and foremost is it requires systems and organizations to first ask the question, how do we become more trustworthy? And I believe that if we become more trustworthy, we then actually will build trust in the community. It will come. I think the other piece that is really important to really think about as well is how do we think about trustworthiness in any type of relationship then? And that includes then being open, being transparent, ensuring that the information, resources, et cetera, et cetera, and even the outcomes that come from that work and that engagement is accessible and that we have real true engagement with our communities. I'll add two more to that. I think one of the other things that we have to really start thinking about is how do we become uh, societies that truly understand what it means to be anti-racist? What does it mean to ensure that we are being anti-bias? And how do we infuse an equity lens in the work that we're doing, uh, whether it's evidence, um, looking at real-world data, or looking at engaging communities around clinical trials participation, or both, or, or some combination of that? So I think that the, the opportunity that we have um, and, and also challenge is to, what does that look like? So when we're using these data, do we actually let people know that we're using the data? And at what point are we making sure that people know when data are being used or their data being used in any meaningful way? How do we ensure that that information, the work that we're doing, gets back into the hands of those who need it most, particularly in the context of disparities? And what does that actually look like as well? And then even before everything else, really thinking proactively about what does engagement look like? And when we say that, I mean community and patient engagement. Are there questions or insights that we could actually glean from our communities, with our communities, and from our patients to really understand in a meaningful way, what are we doing? How are we doing it? And how can we make it even better? I can speak from my own experiences that every research uh, project that I have developed, led, centers I've led, has always been fully engaging with community partners. And I call my community partners my community colleagues, if you will, because mm -hmm. um, I see them as full-fledged colleagues who have expertise and insights that without them, the work could not be the best it could possibly be. And so I think it's just really important in this space to really think about transparency, think about trustworthiness, think about access, and, and really, one, having an equity lens, and two, who are the experts, the community and patient experts that we should be engaging in this process. It's almost like with research, we have a tendency to kind of have an idea, uh, and we do a study, we make implications about that study, we see the disparities in those studies, and then we actually say what the implications are. And the implications are usually based on what the last studies said they were. And at no, no point do we truly disrupt that process to find out what do the people who we're talking about think about these findings? Mm -hmm. <laughs> what does that mean to them in their real world and real lived experiences? And what do solutions and strategies look like? So mm -hmm. I think that when we talk about that, I know that was a broad way to answer this question, but I think it's a great opening question to also kind of think about how you framed up the conversation so far and what we need to really start thinking about in terms of those challenges. It's really how do we move forward in creating that kind of environment that's accessible, that's trustworthy, that's open and fully engaged. Hope that helps. Yes, it does help. Uh, I, I love the way that you talk about how you consider your community partners, community colleagues, and how you, um, the way that you look at how research shapes practice is, and, and future research is not just by what the peer-reviewed journal article lends itself to in terms of its recommendations and next steps, but that you're looking to do what I like to call kind of community-informed next steps. You know, 
I really like to perform what I consider community-informed metrics and evaluation, such that when we're looking at what it is that we're evaluating, what it is that we're determining is success, is that it's also based on what you were just sharing, which is like, well, what does the community and the actual participants think? What would it have Mm -hmm. to look like in order for them to feel like their time Mm -hmm. and resources and participation actually turned into something successful. And sometimes those things are the same as what our peer reviewed journals, our funders, our research colleagues think, but oftentimes it's something different. And so I love the fact that you're taking those things into consideration in terms of how you like to develop a line of research and a line of inquiry. That's really exciting. Right at this time, I want to I want to pivot a little bit and talk with Alicia about what role healthcare interactions have in advancing accurate representation and research. And if she could also give our audience a short definition of what real world evidence is or what real world data is. So to start, thank you, Naisha, Carla, and Nadine for inviting me to participate in this conversation. You know, I will start with a definition of real world data so that the audience can understand a little bit about what we may talk about today. When we're talking about real world data, we're really talking about data that is derived from or originates from a number of different sources and are associated with outcomes from the real world setting. So we're really talking about things such as data from the electronic health record or data from that, that payers may generate from healthcare claims. And thanks so much for the fantastic question, Aisha. You know, I really think that um, healthcare interactions play a pivotal role in advancing accurate representation research for a couple of reasons. First, people's experiences and interactions with the healthcare system and it really shapes their perceptions of healthcare professionals and clinical medicine and clinical research. These interactions really do form the paradigm from which people, patients, participants view healthcare delivery and clinical research participation. And it also impacts the collection of clinical real-world data that can inform trial development, also trial recruitment, and our understanding of the real-world performance of different medical products, interventions, and other uh, services and programs. That's great. Thank you for shedding light on how important it is in our day-to-day walk, right? And how we are engaging with healthcare systems, patient advocacy groups, how we engage with our doctors, our pharmacists, and things of that sort, and how that shapes the way that we think about research, how we think about healthcare research and health innovations. I'm sure that there are a number of other things that play into our thoughts and our feelings and our comfort level, but those are definitely some really strong ones. Along those lines, when we're thinking about accurate representation and research, I'm wondering, and I'm going to kind of direct this to Nadine, but Alicia, feel free to jump in. Carla, of course, join me in the conversation. That is, do physicians and pharmacists or other prescribers have any role to play in regard to trust. So we tend to think about like the patient, right? The patient or participant has to be able to feel trustworthy. But what about the doctors and prescribers when they think about 
the trust that goes into different research opportunities or data that's being gathered, what part do they play in terms of helping us to advance accurate representation in, in research? Oh, that's a great question again, Naisha. And, you know, it, it really is important to really think about how our providers and research teams, et cetera, can play a key part in, in really creating a, a trustworthy environment. And also, particularly in the context of research and trials, I think that there's a lot to be said on multiple levels. We know that bias, implicit bias, most certainly plays out in the patient encounter, right? Regardless of what area we're looking at, we've seen it come out in mental health, drug prescription. We've also seen it show up in cardiovascular disease. We've seen it in employment opportunities where there's clear biases that play out that really disadvantage, disadvantages minoritized populations in particular. So we know that that exists across the gamut in just all of healthcare. And there's no reason for us not to see that and expect that to show up also in the clinical research and trial space. In fact, there's some great studies that have also highlighted both research teams, clinicians, uh, providers, and the PIs of research studies actually show that they have uh, implicit biases where they actually are not engaging our patients in a meaningful way around research participation. Um, so it's not just that people are getting these experiences where they're getting suboptimal care, but they're also getting lack of access to research and trials that could potentially be life-enhancing, life-saving, if not for them personally, most certainly for the broader population. And so I think that uh, they play a, a huge part in that. I think some of it is around this concept of cultural, uh, we, we talk about cultural humility or cultural competence. I think that there's opportunities there for our providers to be more effective in that space, but also recognizing that, you know, even something as simple as entering data about a patient and then that data then becoming data we use for research. Uh, they, you know, we all know, my colleagues would say this as well, bad data in is what you put in is what you get out. If it's bad data yes. going in, it's going to be bad data coming out as well and not truly reflective um, of, of what, what the real situations may be. Likewise, when we talk about it in the context of race and ethnicity, uh, that's also an important part within a systems level of how we're capturing that data and how useful it is. But then we also need trainings around cultural competencies, cultural humility. I'm not a big fan of using the word culturally competent because there's something about it that implies that you've now received the competencies in culture. And being a Black woman, um, I would not say that I am fully com com competent in the Black experience uh, by any means. And so I think it's a journey that people and particularly providers will need to think about. I also recognize that there needs to be more of a collaboration between research enterprises and where research is available and providers who are giving care uh, so that there's more access. Uh, so one is the access that providers can work together toward that. But the other is how patients are actually treated and ensuring that, again, that our stereotypes and assumptions are not impacting how patients are engaged if they are engaged in research and participating in research, and if they are, what their experiences are like. So the studies that were done in cancer, for example, by Reagan Durant in U over UAB, clearly found that stereotypes and assumptions were a big part of what the PIs, who are clinician scientists, as well as the research team thought that when they saw Black and Latino Latinx populations, they felt that they would not follow through, they would not mm -hmm. adhere to the study, they would not have the appropriate support. All these things that they're assuming about that patient without ever, without ever asking that patient, are these truly barriers for you, right? Uh, right? And engaging them in the conversation. So 
there's a lot of work that needs to be done in that space. One around training, um, most certainly for the research teams, one about creating more opportunities for access um, and partnerships in spaces, particularly like in rural areas where clinical trials may not be available. Who could we potentially be partnering with in those regions to be able to ensure that everyone gets access? For me, it's a social justice issue. It's mm -hmm. an equity issue. And until we mm -hmm. really do this well and intentionally well, I think that we'll continue to see challenges where clinicians are not playing this critical pivotal role in this space as well. Right. And I just, everything that you said, Nadine, I, I res resonates with me. And also just on the practical level, like, as you said, if, if on the day-to-day -day clinical interactions, there isn't that trust and patients are not being heard, or there's this implicit bias where they're concerns about their health are not being heard or they're not able to speak up, then that, that carries with it throughout the course of clinical care delivery and also should suggest that those inf that information is not being captured and, and that lack of trust filters into why patients aren't either being asked or being or answering the question about race mm -hmm. and ethnicity, which we know has real roots to help us understand the population demographic. Mm -hmm. And, and can have real impact on getting people into clinical trials. And I, th I know that Alicia has some of our, through the RAISE course, had, had talked about some of those potential solutions to get at being able to be transparent about why race and ethnicity are being collected. Thanks, Carl. I'm happy to speak to that a little bit. You know, I think that one of the things that we heard and raised was that first we need to understand ourselves why we are collecting race and ethnicity data, who might have access to that data, and 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 what that data may then be used for. Well, well, that's it. I think right that you have to be transparent exactly about why you're asking the question of race and ethnicity. What is the kind of how would you want them to answer? And only then can people that are that question is put in front of be able to understand what part of themselves, and because we all know they're not, we're not just one, one demographic factor, right? And we're, we're the combination of our sex, our ethnicity, our race, our, our lived environment, our community environment. So what part of me are you asking so that I can answer this question? And how is that most impactful for what you're trying to achieve in this day-to-day -day interaction and then later down the line, we heard on the RAISE series from Rayanne Martinez and others from uh, University of North Carolina on a series they had called Beyond the Boxes that really spoke to, you know, how researchers down the line are going to be looking at these data as secondary use data and just using this information about race and ethnicity. Oftentimes they use it not knowing the intent of the original question or how it was captured. So again, going back to your point, Alicia, and that of Nadine, very important and critical to be clear about why we are collecting or asking race and ethnicity data, how it is going to be used, and who will have access later on. Mm -hmm. You know, and that also makes me think about, you know, my experience working in the HIV AIDS community. You know, oftentimes with that type of research, you're asking very personal questions that are beyond race and ethnicity, personal questions about drug use, personal questions about sexual behaviors. And so those same types of, you know, transparency about why are you asking this question and what is it going to be used for and making sure that researchers after you're done are able to utilize 
that information as it was intended and not to extrapolate it into some other meaning that doesn't have to do with the mindset of the respondents, right? Um, and where they're coming from when they answer the question. There are so many areas of research where, you know, we want to dive deeper into what people's lived experiences and what their challenges are and, and how they solve them. So I think regardless of what questions we're asking. And of course, the more that they're tied to our identity, the more that they're tied to our behaviors, the more challenging the ethics around that becomes in terms of how do you build and maintain trust and transparency so that you can advance, um, again, accurate representation and research. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Questions You Didn't Ask. We are so excited to partner with the Reagan Udall Foundation for the FDA to explore advancing accurate representation and research. We are speaking with Dr. Carla Rodriguez Watson, Dr. Nadine Barrett, and Dr. Alicia Clary to learn more about how diversity and equity in research is vital to effective cures and how it leads to better patient advocacy and health outcomes. This is a necessary conversation for providers, patients, well, for all of us. Thank you for tuning in today and be sure to come back next week as we continue the conversation on questions you didn't ask.